Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten speaking to you from Ottawa, Canada. Each and every week, a guest and I look at the weekly parasha, the weekly section of the Torah, the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses that are read in synagogues throughout the world. And we spend some time trying to understand both the literal the figurative, and the homiletical meaning as we search to discover how it is that the Jewish people have been able to read through the Torah each and every year and find new meaning, which allows them to uh, find greater depth in their connection to the text and to what it represents for the Jewish people. This week, we're reading from Parsha Vayigash, which our guest will help me translate. It begins in Genesis 44 and ends in Genesis 47, and it is the penultimate section of the book of Genesis. So let me give you an overview. Judah, the eldest son of the patriarch Jacob, approaches Joseph who is sitting on the throne of Egypt as a uh, bureaucrat to plead for the release of Benjamin, his youngest brother, offering himself as a slave to the Egyptian ruler in Benjamin's stead. Upon witnessing his brother's loyalty to one another, Joseph now reveals his identity to them. He says, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? The brothers are overcome by shame and perhaps remorse, but Joseph comforts them. The text tells us that Joseph says the following, It is not you who sent me here, but the divine. It has all been ordained from above to save us and the entire region from famine. The brothers rush back to Canaan with the news. Jacob comes to Egypt with all his sons and their families. The text tells us there were 70 souls in his family and is reunited with his beloved son Joseph after 22 years. On the way to Egypt, he receives a divine promise. Fear not to go down to Egypt, for I will there make you a great nation. I will go down with you into Egypt, and I will surely bring you up again. Joseph gathers the wealth of Egypt by selling food and seed during the famine. Joseph gives Jacob's family the fertile country of Goshen, a section of the land of Egypt to settle, and the children of Israel prosper, according to the text, in their Egyptian exile from the land of Canaan. With me this morning is one of the preeminent rabbis of Canada, a member of the Order of Canada for his work in the community that he served uh, as rabbi in Mississauga, Ontario. He was the founding rabbi of Solel Congregation and served there from 1973 
until 2014, at which point he uh, retained the title of founding rabbi. He continues now as an adjunct rabbi to Congregation Temple Temple Sinai in Toronto, where he grew up and he learned from his mentors there. Rabbi Englander received uh, an honors BA from York University in Toronto, Canada. He was ordained as a rabbi at Hebrew Union College, Jewish Institute of Religion in 1975, and he received a doctorate of Hebrew letters from the same institution in 1984, not 1884, but 1984, in the field of Jewish mysticism and rabbinics. He has taught in the Religious Studies Department of York University, has also spent time teaching rabbinical students at the Leo Beck College in London, England. He has written uh, several articles on Jewish mysticism, as well as a book, The Mystical Study of Ruth, and he is the former editor of the Central Conference of American Rabbis Journal. It is a pleasure to welcome back to our program Rabbi Lawrence Englander of Toronto, Canada. Rabbi, welcome back to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. Thank you, Rabbi Garten. It's a pleasure to be back with you. I know that you've also written a novel. Yes. Though I have a copy of it, I don't have it with me. So perhaps you can enlighten our listeners to the name of your novel, give them a bit of an overview, and tell them where they can find it. Well, that's very kind of you. Uh, The title is called The Prince of Healers, and it's basically a, a historical fiction where the main character is Rabbi Moses Maimonides, who uh, was a very um, famous and uh, brilliant uh, thinker who lived in the uh, 12th century, uh, going from Spain and landing up in uh, Egypt. Uh, and then his um, counterpart in this novel is uh, Saladin, the great uh, Muslim warrior uh, at, at that time. Uh, historically, it's doubtful that they ever met, but in this book, they become buddies and uh, they, they uh, launch kind of a common uh, cause. Um, so um, anyway, you, it's available on Amazon, either paperback or uh, ebook. And once again, the title is The Prince of Healers. And thank you very much for mentioning it. Oh, my pleasure. I enjoyed reading it. And for those of you who might enjoy historical fiction, it's an era that uh, very few books are written about. Um, And certainly one should be reminded that during what is called the golden age of Spain, Muslims and Jews and Christians had a wonderful intersection, both uh, um, communally and academically and scholastically. And this book kind of gives a peek into that and then introduces Saladin. So thank you very much. I hope that some of our listeners will take advantage um, of your wonderful writing. Uh, So I've introduced the Torah portion, and I wanted to uh, pick up on something that we had talked about prior to going on the air, and that was the Hebrew verbs that are used in uh, Genesis 45, uh, one through eight. And um, perhaps you can read for our listeners um, those verses as we begin to unpack them. Yeah, I just want to mention, first of all, that this is really the climax 
of the Joseph story. So it, it's really fraught with tension. I, I mean, uh, it's been building and building. The brothers have really gone through uh, um, hell and back uh, as Joseph taunts them and, and uh, um, disguises himself. And so finally, Joseph is overcome with emotion that he wants to reveal himself to his brothers. And as you quoted earlier, he says, I am your brother, Joseph. Is my father still alive? You know, in other words, was he able to endure all this sorrow? But the key verse that we start with is the next one, verse four in chapter 45, where he draws his brothers closer to him and says, um, I am your brother, Joseph, he whom you sold into Egypt. The Hebrew uh, root of that is machar, to sell. But then in the very next verse, he says, now don't be distressed or reproach yourselves because you sold me here. It was to save life that God sent me ahead of you. So the verb machar, to sell, suddenly becomes the verb shalach, to send. And then it even goes on from there where he talks about the fact that he's uh, been able to overcome uh, the famine. And then in verse 7, he says it again. God has sent me ahead of you to ensure your survival on earth and to save your lives. So Joseph seems to have an inkling now that what was a tragedy in his life where he was sold into slavery was really being sent by God. So let me just make sure that our listeners um, are up to date about where we are. The Joseph's epic is, of course, a very sta- famous story made more uh, accessible through the play Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Um, in the short form, you remember that Joseph's brothers are um, jealous of him. They throw him in a pit. They soak his colored uh, coat in goat's blood. They convince their father that he is dead, and Joseph is sold to the Ishmaelites, the text, and he ends up in Egypt. Through a a set of um, plot devices, he ends up uh, interpreting dreams for the Pharaoh, and the Pharaoh rewards him with this position of uh, prime minister. Um, And now, um, having been away from his brothers for 22 years, the text tells us, a famine is in the land and the brothers are sent by their father, Jacob, to the land to bring food back from Egypt to Canaan. And so our parasha begins with the third meeting of the brothers and Joseph, at which point he reveals himself. So I hope that all of you can follow that. If not, you're welcome to check out our parasha as Rabbi Englander now um, indicates how the Torah portion itself takes a significant turn from just a a wonderful piece of narrative to something much deeper. There's a hint of it, too, earlier in the book. So in other words, this isn't just a coincidence that these verbs appear. If you go back to the beginning, you mentioned about the brothers kind of uh, uh, throwing him in a pit. How did he get to his brothers? They were out tending their sheep, and Joseph was a home buddy at home. So in the very beginning of the Joseph story, in chapter 37, Jacob, his father, says to him, your brothers are pasturing in Shechem, 
come, I will send you to them. And Joseph answers, Hineni, which is often translated, I am ready. But I think a better way of translating it is, I am here to do your will. Any of you who are familiar with that great Canadian poet and songwriter, Leonard Cohen, and his song, Hallelujah, or sorry, his song, You Want It Darker. Right. The last album that he recorded, I guess the A-side, when we had A-side and B-sides, but the A-side of the album was Hineni. Yeah. So... Leonard Cohen, too, said, here, I am ready to do your uh, your bidding, O God. So th- the text continues that Jacob sent him toward his brothers. And then what happens? As he's walking, he meets this man in the middle of the field. And he says to the guy, I'm looking for my brothers. Do you know where they are? And basically, the man says, they went that way. If any of you remember the old westerns, that's the role that Gabby Hayes used to play in the middle, right? With a with, with a turned up Stetson hat. Oh yeah, Black Barton's gang went that away. So the point is, why is this man standing there out of nowhere? Uh, once again, the uh, the interpreters to to this story say it was really an angel sent by God uh, to make sure that Joseph got to his brothers. So the whole point of the, this then is that now the 21 years have passed, Joseph suddenly realizes that he was destined to come to Egypt. It, it, it wasn't that his, uh, even though his brothers were malicious in doing it, it was really for a higher purpose. And Joseph now realizes that he is a messenger of God, and that's why he was there. There is also one other um, episode in the narrative that seems to suggest Joseph knows this. And when Joseph is in prison and he's asked by the Pharaoh's baker, and I think it's the cupbearer, the sommelier, who are both in prison for um, uh, disabusing Pharaoh, um, they're asked to, they ask Joseph to interpret his dreams. And he says, I can't interpret their dreams, but God makes me capable. Yes. Of understanding, uh, what these mean. Yes. And so that's another kind of hint that this story is more than just a narrative of the patriarchs' lives. And remember that right at the beginning, what alienated uh, him to his brothers was two dreams that he had, where basically in symbolic form, his two parents and his brothers were bowing down to him. But at the time, he was a teenager, he was very egotistical, and probably didn't understand the historical import of those dreams that he had. It was only now when he's a mature adult, when he's back in a reunion with his brothers, that it all comes together for him. And he understands the purpose of his, uh, of his being in, e- in Egypt and the purpose of his life. So I played around with this idea and I thought, are there other people in history who also had this sense of being sent? And the prime person that I'd like to share with you, and I don't think you'll be surprised if I mention it, is Dr. Martin Luther King. And that he too felt that he had a sense of mission, a divine mission, 
in uh, desegregating the South and in bringing his people to um, uh, a status of equality. There's one quote that I got from him, which is this. Uh, he was responding, I think, to a, um, a reporter. Yes, if you want to say that I was a drum major, say that I was a drum major for justice. Say that I was a drum major for peace. I was a drum major for righteousness. And all the other shallow things will not matter. I think originally that was supposed to be carved into his memorial in Washington, D.C. And for some reason they, they uh, chose against that. But I think it's a very key quote of uh, Dr. King. And it shows, once again, he saw that he had a greater destiny, despite all the sorrow and all the challenge that he and his people went through. So so let me ask you a question which may have come to the mind of some of our listeners. Joseph begins um, a few chapters earlier as this spoiled child. Mm -hmm. He has three encounters, the one that you mentioned with... um, an unidentified person in the field who, who later tradition says is a messenger from God. He has um, a series of uh, happenstance that put him in jail. Um, and, he's, and he seems to uh, apprehend the notion that he is going to be a messenger for more than just a narrative story. Um, and then you suggest that the Hebrew itself says he's a messenger. What makes Joseph a worthy messenger? Because having quoted Martin Luther King, um, at least Martin Luther King on the surface led a life that would indicate to all who followed him that he was a worthy messenger. Why is Joseph a worthy messenger? You can broaden that question. Why would anybody be a worthy messenger? And how do we separate the wheat from the chaff? How do we separate the worthy ones from those who are not? Let me give you an example. Joan of Arc. At age of 13, Joan of Arc began to hear voices, which she felt were were being sent to her by God, giving her a mission to save France from uh, her enemies and to install Charles as the rightful king. And she succeeded. Um, in doing that, and uh, charismatically, she she uh, led an army. Was she a worthy messenger of God, or was she just lucky uh, in terms of getting people together? It gets even tougher. There's a gentleman by the well, I use that term loosely here, uh, an individual called Abu Muhammad al Adnani, who was the founder of ISIS. And he basically feels that he is sent by God to destroy all non-believers and to encourage his um, followers to carry out violent attacks wherever they can. And the disbelievers can be killed because this is sanctioned by God. Is he sent by God? Uh, Is his mission uh, worthy? So I guess the, the question I'm wrestling with is how do we know among those who even claim to be sent by God, which claims are legitimate and which are not. And to be honest with you, Rabbi Garden, I don't think there is a hard and fast answer. We don't know why it was Joseph who was chosen. We don't know why Martin Luther King may have been a, uh, a an emissary of God, if you wish. We don't know 
why um, ISIS, the leader of ISIS claims that role and, and what in our minds, I would assume, would make his uh, claim illegitimate. So the only thing that I can come up with is this. And once again, it was in the Talmud where the rabbis struggled with this very same problem. And it was with prophecy that they were wrestling. How do you distinguish between a legitimate prophet and a false prophet? And what they came up with is, it's not just the prophet's personality. It's not just how clever he is or anything like that. The litmus test is if any claimant to the title of prophecy goes against the ethical teachings of the Bible, then they are false prophets. And certainly anybody advocating genocide would not be uh, a legitimate prophet in the eyes of the, uh, of the Talmudic rabbis. And so that, I think, is one criterion that we can use that they have to at least abide by an ethical code that has come down to us in Jewish and Christian and Muslim tradition. So it, would you would you suggest that that's why we have this episode with Potiphar's wife, that the episode of Joseph's refusal to engage in some sort of sexual liaison with Potiphar's wife is part of his bona fides uh, as a messenger? There's a beautiful story about that. Uh, the text says that one day Joseph went in to do his work. And the rabbis in the Midrash who are commenting on this say, to do his work, you have to mean that he really was willing to uh, engage in a sexual encounter with Potiphar's wife. She had been tempting him for days and days. And so he was finally ready. But as soon as he encountered her, he had a vision of his father's face. And remember, he hadn't seen his father in a long time. And his father said, how can you tarnish our noble lineage and, and the ethical principles for which we stand? And so that convinced him or, or turned him away from consummating that act. So what is, what is Jacob's face? What is his father's face that he sees? I think that is his ancestral ethical tradition that comes to mind. It's his conscience. If, if you're a Freudian, it's his superego that, that comes to him and says, you have higher standards to live by than what you're about to do. Therefore, refrain from doing it. Uh, of course, the message is a very important message. It's interesting, and perhaps our listeners will consider it, Jacob is not necessarily the most ethical person. Um, he steals his brother's birthright. Um, he tricks his father. Um, the story of Jacob is filled with uh, questionable decisions. And yet at that moment, as the Midrash says, uh, Jacob has uh, transitioned into some sort of ethical reminder a paragon of ethical behavior. Um, and so Joseph, perhaps as most children see their fathers and parents as paragons until they're much older. Um, so that's interesting. I want to uh, ask you uh, something else that you said. So he sees Jacob's 
face in this vision. And that is, the Midrash suggests, the reason that he refrains from this behavior. Jacob remains the third of the patriarchs. Joseph's place in the lineage is somewhat questionable. Uh, The story um, of Joseph and his brothers helps us get to Egypt and then get out of Egypt. But why is Joseph not held in higher esteem by uh, the ancient rabbis in Jewish tradition? I think there's a historical and a metaphorical answer to that. The historical one is that, remember, um, he had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And when the Israelites finally went into Canaan and the allotment of land was given to each tribe, Joseph's tribe was split into two. And there was the tribe of Manasseh and the tribe of Ephraim, both of whom were very powerful tribes in the north. So in that sense, it was the names of his sons that lived on. Uh, on the land and not him. I think maybe the other more metaphorical interpretation is that Joseph was really Jewish history's first diaspora Jew. He really didn't live very long in Israel. He lived most of his life in Egypt, in the diaspora, among a non-Jewish, a non-Hebrew majority. And so in that sense, I think Joseph is kind of a prototype for uh, for many of us, for you and me, uh, you know, who live in Canada and uh, uh, thrive here and, and uh, have a very supportive uh, national environment here, as did Joseph. So um, I, I, I guess he had kind of that uh, uh, a- a- ambivalent upbringing. Plus, remember, for the patriarchs, it was also the matriarchs. It was they and their wives that uh, carried on the tradition. For Joseph, his wife doesn't really, we don't really know very much about her at all. And she was an Egyptian. And I mean, all we really know is that uh, she gives birth to these two children and that um, Joseph wants the children to be blessed by Jacob. I mean, it's similar to your novel of Maimonides, who does not grow up in the land of Israel, um, grows up in uh, Spain, and that's right. Most of his life, his later life, is spent in Egypt, and his success as a um, scholar and interpreter of texts, as well as a doctor, is the life that he creates in the diaspora. So take Maimonides and compare him to Joseph. All right, when Maimonides lived, he wasn't very well liked. He was very controversial. He had very um, outside of the box ideas about Judaism. So why is he famous now? Joseph was a brat, a spoiled brat as a kid. Okay, you could say he was a really good dream interpreter and he was a really smart administrator, but why would that make him an agent of God? I think the other criterion, besides abiding by the ethical standards of, of Torah that I mentioned earlier, is really the ultimate arbiter is history. You really don't know the pudding until you taste it. You really don't know how effective and how um, ethical, how godly an individual is until you actually see their life spelled out and look at it in hindsight. So history, if history is the ultimate arbiter, that it means that we have to wait. We don't always know the answer ready-made for it. In their time. That's right. 
My guest this morning has been Rabbi Lawrence Englander, founding rabbi of Solo Congregation of Mississauga, Ontario, and now adjunct rabbi at Temple Sinai in Toronto. I want to thank him for his insights and wisdom. You can hear this morning's uh, show broadcast on CHRI 99.1 FM or as a podcast on chri.ca, on iTunes, and on YouTube. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten, wishing you shalom and a good day. <laughs>